You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. Oh my God, no time to and welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerds. Joining me as always is Cap and Alex from the Something Good Network. What's going on? Yo, yo. And we are tracking the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. I guess now we're, as we've been saying, we're kind of into cycles. Cycle by cycle. Right. And Although it's kind of getting yearly right now. It's- <laughs> Yeah, because we're starting basically at the beginning of 96 here, Mm -hmm. and uh, we just came out of the uh, unplugged uh, and reunion, I guess, for lack of a better. And how much of a success the uh, unplugged, uh, you know, uh, uh, air date was, too, or at least the uh, reception. Yeah, the reception to it was really strong. Oh, Um, yeah. And um, so 1996 is starting out not with a flurry of activity, but really with a blizzard. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. So some of this timeline we're probably going to be squirrely on because I really couldn't figure out a lot of information on it because there's just so much happening all at once. Right. You've got a record being made and then big plans for a big tour uh, coming down and, the pike, too. And it's all and it's like they're they're, you know, playing both both sides of the coin right now. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, so, too, because like you, you kind of see them uh, kind of dancing with lawyers and uh, other like uh, folks of that ilk too as they're trying to get this set up we'll probably break that down here and there well after unplugged uh everyone kind of essentially goes their separate ways in 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 as much as kiss goes into the studio to record a new album ace and peter uh are have been touring together as the bad Bad boys boys of kiss tour uh, which has a kind of a cheap ring to it. Yeah. Now they're not touring together as a, as bo- you know playing together. It's Ace's, Ace's band, band and Peter's band, right? And then I think they do an encore together. Yeah, I, th- I think it was an encore of like Strange Ways or something. Um, this is I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is George Sewitt's idea. George Sewitt is Peter's manager. I'm not sure if he's Ace's manager. I think he was both of theirs. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was at this point, but definitely later on. And George Sewitt was the had been the tour manager for Kiss in 1979 and 1980, all through the quote unquote Super Kiss era. Yeah. So he's not unfamiliar to Gene and Ball. Um, he will kind of prove to be a bit of a stone in their shoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, Say the least. At any rate, but that's you know kind of in the future. We'll we'll probably reach that at some point. I mean, well, I mean, he kind of flexed it already a little bit during the unplugged era. Yeah, we talked, I think, a little bit about mm-hmm. that in the last episode. Yep he's 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 made made things needlessly difficult on occasion. Yeah, but I'm sure he's off also very clearly, obviously aware 
the potential here and right. the potential for his percentages in it. Yeah, because, of course, as we know uh, from the Unplugged session, everybody got super excited when Peter and Ace came back. Yeah. You know, my band is back together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that how that incarnation of Kiss is regarded as my band. Everyone has a personal take on it. Like, yeah. you know, uh, it's not, not our band. <laughs> That's my band. Yeah. See, my kiss does my this. Kiss. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was reluctance on the part of MTV to even see this thing commercially released. I don't know the details on that or if it was just some sort of a push pull duality. I think I mentioned this in the previous episode. If you haven't listened to it, check go it back out. and check it out. Um, but the interesting twist of events uh, uh, here is Danny Goldberg who was Kiss's PR guy in the 70s and uh, was the head of Swansong Records at one point. We've talked about him in previous episodes. Well, he is now the CEO of Mercury, which is Kiss's record label. And he is able to cut through the red tape and sort out the, the details and, you know, cross the I's and dot the T's and all that fun (laughs) stuff to have unplugged released commercially. Well, I didn't part of, did you run into, because I actually, you bringing this up now is reminding me some, I feel like it was because in the past MTV Unplugged Records, it was like it was released under MTV Records and it was under their own subsidy and like the bands got a certain percentage, I probably, but of course I, Gene slash management wasn't going to be happy with that and they wanted to release it their own likely. way. I don't know. I, I tried to look that up and I couldn't find information on that. And um, I, do I didn't dig deeply enough, hmm. obviously, but yeah. I knew it was enough of a, of a problem. But what was more interesting to me was the fact that of all people that was able to do this, it was Danny Goldberg right. who has had a relationship with Kiss at this point in time, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting to me that he also has created a plan to have the entire back catalog, Kiss's entire back catalog, remastered and reissued. Mm-hmm. And all of this, of course, is to serve to a much greater purpose, which is, you know, of course, a full scale reunion. But this time, just a uh, with the original members. Mind. In, in full regalia. Yeah, but he lobbied very heavily for this. And according to him, when he approached the band with the idea, they countered by saying, we've already been discussing this for a full two years. I believe it. I believe it. you even read. So this predates even the unplugged reunion. This goes back. And, you know, it's, it's, and we've talked about how they're embracing their past as a means to and this is also chart a course forward, for the yeah. future. And this is also the era where like a lot of like classic rock bands are like doing reunion tours, like the Eagles, for example, and getting like a shit ton of money as a result. Well, yeah, and things tend to work in cycles. In the in the seventies, all things retro was the fifties. Right. And you know, you had happy days and American graffiti and Greece and stuff like this. In the in the eighties, particularly in the tail end of the eighties, everything Retro was the 60s. Mm-hmm. You had the Wonder Years. You saw a Grateful Dead come back, curiously mm-hmm. enough. You, you know, you had movies that... Vietnam movies. Yeah, Vietnam movies. movies like out there, yin-yang. <laughs> so as we're moving into the 90s, of course, the retro vibe becomes the 70s. So you see, like you said, the Eagles reunion or whatever. And now you're mm-hmm. seeing kind of a, a more of a reflection of the past. And, and obviously, I mean, in 1986... Ten years prior to this time, 
Do you think Mercury would have any interest in, re- in reissuing the entire Kiss Back catalog? No. No. And, and, and it's been detailed in other places just how poorly they put together the old you know that the older material when they were releasing it in the 80s it was such haphazardly put together and so mm-hmm. shoddily put together that there's websites that detail all the and, weird little and i've and i've gone down that this, yeah. yeah and i've gone down that rabbit hole man and and prop and i don't have his name pulled up because it really just wasn't as important to the topic we're going to be discussing today but props to that guy robert connie okay yes yeah. he okay he's the guy that did all the liner notes then yeah i think for, he was yeah I okay think he was I I remember listening. Yes, I remember hearing. Okay, yeah, Robert. It was a true MVP for historian level stuff around this time period, and it was cool seeing folks like him now being part of the record industry because it was the first time you were starting to really see the fans now being in charge. Yeah, get get a get a a piece of the Mm -hmm. action. I guess I don't think he ever really got a good piece of the action as far as financially but no but i will say from a personal level since we're talking about the kiss remasters just a little bit um on a personal level that's where i got a lot of my original history because mom was buying those remasters a lot and every time she bought the cd she would hand me the jewel case she's like while we're listening to it you need to read it oh yeah yeah. and i would read the inside because it was the clear jewel case that well, had this, the notes this in it. have still yet to come this is just the yeah the, yeah the but germ I'm just of saying, the but, idea but, but is happening in this him. time yeah but props to him he's and, and, good at yeah and well props to danny goldberg for having the vision to do it yeah yeah and the power Right. But of course, it's all feeding towards an end. Like mm-hmm. I said, I mean, and 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 to consider, you know, again as usual, Kiss, Gene and Paul, they're they're not they're they're going to hedge their bet as always. Right. And how so? Well, there's again a lot going on, but they are in the studio making a new album with Eric Singer, Eric Singer, and, and Bruce, Bruce Kulick. Uh, at this point, the band is again basically self-managed. Um, Larry yep. Mazur had quit over the stupid idea of a self-tribute album. <laughs> right now, um, do you think that was a good call for him to kind well, of quit over given, that? Given the ultimate, what happened? No, mm-hmm. probably not. But it was probably good for him in that moment. I mean, it's, it was the right decision at the right time for him, probably because right. he probably saw this as like, you know what. I'm supposed to be a creative involvement here and you're just steamrolling over my ideas. You're not even taking them into account. You're going to go do your own thing. No matter what I say, mm-hmm. wouldn't you quit too? It's like, am I a yeah. partner here? Am I, what do you, what do you pay me to do here? I mean, it would have been easy for him just to collect the money, but you know, he was a creative too. Maybe he just didn't see the money right I mean, away. I, I might be calling this wrong, but I'm just that saying from sense. an outside perspective, I can see totally why he would quit. And he wasn't wrong. You know, the idea of doing your own, curating your own tribute album is the corniest, most, <laughs> you know. Bottom dollar, though. It's it, it, The bottom dollar was nothing because shit didn't sell. Now, you were talking about, I think it was like you or Williams were talking about this uh, or something like uh, how Garth Brooks' involvement with Kiss should have put them over. And it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. friend Jeff Williams made a comment on a, on, on one of the uh, Facebook mm-hmm. posts about this. And we are a presence on Facebook somewhere if you wish to go find it. Though something good network. Yeah. All right. yes. Well, there you go. Share your, share your thoughts and <laughs> yes. comment on them. Yeah. Um, you can always find the links in the episode know, the, description. The involvement of Garth Brooks. But, and I and I realized I think I had made my point poorly in that episode 
that yes, Garth Brooks was a major, major, major star. Right. And that was the point I was, I guess I failed to make was how, and and of course they wanted to play a track with him Mm -hmm. as to tie their name to the biggest star in show business at that point. Right. And of course it did nothing. Right. They didn't, they didn't even release it as a single, which is mind-blowing to me. I know it. Yeah, I considering mean, he was such a red-hot star. he was such star. a star, you would think if they played their cards right, that maybe they would have gotten, maybe if not a big hit, at least something, I'm you know? Little, yeah. Well, anyway. and But then again, you know, if Larry, Larry Mazur wasn't involved, he wasn't there to pull the string to make that happen, he probably would have seen the potential in that. Who knows? I don't, that's just speculative. Right. I still don't know where... If anywhere, um, Dr. Jesse Hilson is in the picture. I don't know if he's long gone at this point or not. Yeah, you kind of you don't hear anything uh, about him. No, he was kind of there for a minute and then just kind of swept away. Well, he but he didn't sweep away. He he ran away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> apparently with a pocket full of cash. Um, yeah. At any rate, they are also working on securing new management. And this happens when they hired Doc McGee. And Doc McGee um, had managed all the mega platinum 80s bands like Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, and I guess other Scorpions, other hard rock acts that had been far more successful than Kiss during the 80s. So, So Doc was already on board while they were recording carnival of souls i don't know that's they were hiring him in this process that's okay, all again it. that's what i'm saying all of this sort of blurs together so i don't know exact dates because we know he's totally on board in his his whole idea to to do this because i was gonna say uh carnival of souls was recorded from november 95 to, to february, february 96 yeah, right so this is what I, this is the time frame we're mm-hmm. talking about here yeah um but the only reason to take on Kiss, there's only one reason. Yeah, if you're going to be, if you're going to be the manager of the Kiss that reunites, exactly. So and that and this from is every all story, in play. Yeah, and allegedly Peter is already contacted in December, and initially turns it down. So they okay. have to kind of work on him a little bit with that. George Suet says you ought to do this you know george suet's on board he's the guy that's like what are you fucking crazy (laughs) (laughs) and so peter has to be kind of coerced for a minute because he's peter's finally at a place where he's like you know a little bit more comfortable he's more at peace with life and knows that this is going to be a lot yeah but i mean i you know we'll talk about that in a a future episode but let's talk a little bit about doc mcgee because who the hell is doc mcgee and where does he come from well obviously we just said he was a major player in the Mm -hmm. late 80s uh, managing the biggest names in hard rock. A super manager, if you will. But where does he come from? Doc <laughs> uh, McGee mm-hmm. was a small-time band manager whose best-known client by the early, you know, maybe tail end 70s or very early 80s was Pat Travers. Hmm. Boom, boom, out goes the lights. Right, kind of mid-tier at the time. But what Doc McGee is probably better known for is he is a major wheeler dealer in the drug trade. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> we know this because, uh, to be fair, my I did some research on this, and a lot of this might be sketchy, so I may have facts wrong. So I'm not... Allegedly. Uh, yeah, yeah, so all of allegedly. this is, well, it's not allegedly because he's arrested in 1982 while uh, trying to <laughs> smuggle 20 tons of dope into the united states <laughs> do you know where this occurs at the uh oh fuck 
Yeah, you, you called me on it. If you had not said, I could have told you. Go ahead. North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, what, wow. what, what was the specific uh, route, though? Because I thought oh, that was... I don't know. I just know okay. that... I mean, coastal North Carolina, I've known for... Even in the 80s, I mean, it was kind of like a... I don't know if it's an open secret, but that it, that was one of the major points for where drugs flooded into America because the coast of Carolina mm. is just riddled with, like, islands and inways for you know it's that it's it's very difficult area to patrol right so coastal carolina has always been you know a a a spot for that or had been just hilton head island just a fucking uh (laughs) that's south carolina but you know it that was the appeal for the the smugglers and so he gets popped um he's facing 30 year 30 year sentence if convicted this is in 1980 well, I think this tri- doesn't go to trial until the late 80s. Right, because right. then the, he does like a whole thing for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, he avoids his serious time because I, I, I think he turns state's evidence. I don't know. But um, from what I understood, he he assisted in helping feds earn other convictions, which means he ratted. Yeah. Right. To save his he, own ass. That guy, that guy. He, he, looks, <laughs> he, looks, he looks like the face of a rat. So, And then he had an involvement with the Make a Difference Foundation or founded it in response to this, like, look what I'm doing. This is yeah. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of that either. I know he's involved to a degree. And that ultimately leads to the notorious Moscow Peace Festival. Yeah. <laughs> what year was that? 1989? Something like that. This was. It had to have been 89. Kevin and I watched a, like a semi-documentary on that recently. It was. I remember it was Ozzy Bon Jovi, uh-huh. uh, was Motley Crue. Matt Metallica. I don't think it was Metallica. Yeah, Metallica. Yeah. There was Scorpions. a ton. There was like too many heavy hitters it, it was on the this biggest bill kind ones. of thing. And, and the stories behind it, of course, the great, in addition to, if you love irony, there you go. This thing is like <laughs> yeah. a traveling drug caravan. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he's supplying the fucking yeah. shit. Yeah. It's Motley Crue in the 80s. two Motley Crue. And Ozzy. What, I mean, the, what the fuck do you think they're point, doing on the plane? <laughs> the point being, Sorry, the it's irony. Sorry, ir- Well, that's what I'm saying. The irony of the of a former drug dealer becoming the manager of kiss cannot right. be more under or overstated. I don't know if you, <laughs> but if you see interviews from dot McGee from like this time period on, it's like super like professional, well, very yeah, just deadpan. Of course he's good at putting well, on that he, face, well, you know, but of, of, well, of course, and he never is ever addressed this. He refuses to talk about it. He's been a little candid about it on the cruise. Oh, has he a little bit? Cause he's planning on writing a book soon. And he mentioned, yeah. and he mentioned well, that kind of stuff. How much honesty is going to be in that? Though. Right. It'd be interesting to see at least his take. I mean, it just seems to me pretty curious. But the irony, of course, is Gene and Paul is like, Ace and Peter were just totally fucked up all through the 70s. They were completely uh, unreliable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm like, yeah, Doc McGee was probably their goddamn drug dealer. <laughs> but they're also really chomping at the bit to have Ace and Peter back. I know, but, but I'm just saying as far as Doc McGee, the, the, it's, the it's idea not, of managing the, the ship. It's you, the idea of a drug, a guy that was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. What if uh, I think the two guys on that, that never scale did, on that scale? I mean, it's 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 beyond like this really. Dude, this dude wasn't selling some. If there's weed anything to the more bizarre kids. to me, I'm speaking personally. If anything's more bizarre to me than having your psychiatrist be your fucking manager, what, <laughs> oh no, we can't have him. But how about that drug dealer over there? Well, Man, look at the see, drug what, dealer. See, when you're he knows how to manage money. Well, well yeah. I was gonna say well, here's. I, What's it come down to, man, with Gene and Paul is the cash. And I'm not saying that negatively. 
But what does it come down to with the two of them? Well, of course, he talks about this in his but, book. But so they look at what he's what has he done for these bands? I he's agree. made them a ton of money. I agree. I agree. But, and uh, Doc kind of takes a role in the reunion process as a manager, where he's not you know digging you know making more than Gene and Paul either. I don't I, think. This is now. This is purely speculation. Get, yeah. And this is you know, and I'm not saying this happened. But I can imagine that this happened. How would Doc McGee get to pick up these groups back in the day? Hey, not only can I be your manager, but guess what? I'm going to f- help I, you. Un- um, I can help you under the radar, mm-hmm. score some shit if you need it. Yep. You know? All-inclusive management. And, and, and you know, I, and I'm sure taking a percentage for his services, services right. on top of that under the table. It just seems like this guy just is sketchy as fuck to me oh yeah <laughs> i've always got that vibe from every interview i've ever seen from him he just seems so disingenuous dishonest and so shady that i'm like how could they he ingratiate himself to two guys as is supposedly allegedly as business business savvy as gene and paul are because it, this just proves that they aren't that business savvy. I think they have a certain acumen that they've they, they've been able to uh, uh, you know assume over the years, having done this. But they're still allowing themselves to be open to shady characters that'll come in, promising them the sky, sun, sun, stars, and moon, and they take this guy. He's a fucking drug dealer. So, I so think you, every band oh, manager me, X. Drug dealer. I think every band manager from like that time period from the seventies, eighties was like sketchy as hell. Like your Irving well, Azoff's in the world. Well, yeah, that, but, all and, that kind and, of shit. And, and in all fairness, and that's not an unusual practice, by no, the way. I'm currently no. reading a book by a guy named David Liebert. David Liebert was Alice Cooper's tour manager, most famously in the early seventies. Went on to do a lot of work with P Funk, uh, George Clinton. He's just written a book called Rock and Roll: The Rock and Roll Warrior. Mm-hmm. It's been a really great read. It's worth seeking out. But it's kind of the same thing. You know what he ended up doing? Dealing drugs. He's yeah. pretty open about it. And and, and 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 like we said, that kind of, oh, we add this additional service. And, you know, he he's, he's open about that. I'm sure there's probably some other managers that may have done that. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm just saying this guy started. Right. <laughs> you know, whereas David Lieber started as a road manager and, and, and been a pop star of, in the 60s, became a road manager. You know, and then slid into the drug thing. <laughs> this guy's the guy that went the other way around. This yeah. guy failed upwards. And, you know? and, and in in at least a little bit of defense in all this, I don't think Kiss has ever not had semi shady characters around. It's like as much as we would love to talk, you know, so many great things about Bill and Coin. Even he has skeletons in the closet that we don't need to bear mention here. You know, he's he's done some not so shape, so great things. Think, there's again, and there's also that. been some other people around Kiss that have not been so great. So I mean, I honestly think around this time period, Gene and Paul aren't even looking at what the shady bit. They're looking. I think they were perfectly swindled by someone that was already learning emotional EQ at an early time at that point essentially what you do is you're able to read the people that you're pitching to and be able to pitch to their level he understands gene and paul are big thinkers they want someone that thinks outside the box he studied who they were and became the type of salesman that he knew was going to hook them because what was he saying we're going to have you play in the you know all the wonders of the world he was over pitching to show them 
I'm willing to do anything. And then with Doc's personality type, he's willing to do anything for cash. I get that. So he uh, and I is agree. the fetching boy. Uh, right. And that feeds into Gene and Paul's ego. Oh, not only do we have a big thinker, but we have a fetching boy at the same time. I feel like he just perfectly knew how to deal with their personality types to get himself in. Because I'm sure John Bon Jovi and the guys in Motley Crue aren't that too dissimilar from like, you know, the, a big how name different is a Nick and Six I, I, from a Gene I totally Simmons. agree with all of what you just said. But, I, and of course, I'm, everywhere you go, I've got, someone's got a big butt. Let's talk about my big butt. <laughs> um, my, my butt on that is at this point, if they had any kind of savvy whatsoever, though, it would seem to me they would step back and go, well, something to consider here. Yeah, he did manage or is manager of Motley Crue. But what's going on with Motley Crue in 1996? Nothing. He is he was the manager for or is the manager for Bon Jovi. What's Bon Jovi doing in 1996? Scorpions. 80s bands. Scorp- well, all okay. these 80s well, what's, bands. It's well, like, the- okay, if a, a manager's worth his weight or his salt or whatever you want to say, you know, wouldn't he be shepherding them through these hard, difficult times? You know, and and to and and the same can be said for Larry Mazer. I mean, Larry Mazer was doing Cinderella. I mean, mm-hmm. at some point, the, the, I was talking about this with a friend yesterday, and I had missed this. Larry Mazer apparently had gotten to a point where they had threw a two million dollar party tour kickoff party with an equally multi million dollar stage show, and we're like, here we go. They played one show. <laughs> And the rest of the tour was wow. canceled, they, and they threw the stage literally in the trash. So woof. what can be said about Larry Mazur? So don't think I'm just singling yeah, yeah. out Doc McGee, but I would be stopping and thinking, okay, these guys represent a time and place, but if they're looking to the future, it would seem to me that, if, especially in light of what we're going to talk about here in a minute, the type of album that they're getting ready to, or you know, that they are recording. Yeah that they would be looking at the managers of these younger bands that are pushing towards, you know, a future direction Mm -hmm. and not so much of where have you been and what have you done? It's like, what are you doing and what are you going to do? But that's just me thinking again, it's all speculative. What you said makes total sense. And And I have one tiny butt to work with what you said, Mm -hmm. even to even kind of expand on it. So that would make sense. But what did Gene and Paul say a little bit earlier? We've been thinking about this reunion for the last two years. Yeah, and they want and, and they know right. how cutthroat the music industry is. Right? Maybe they're looking at it as well. Doc sent them upward, and because we know how the music industry works, and we know what even happened with I us, agree. they're on their decline. Maybe we're his next project. Yeah. Maybe we're gonna get relaunched right. with well, him. And that's all in regard with what you just said. Yeah. So that does that's. I'm, and it's, I, it's still, and I think it's maybe I think a cut, what cut the truth away. And I think what you just said, the way you described it, the, the big thinking and all that, is exactly what sold them. I, you're absolutely right. And maybe we right can just ride this out for a little bit but and get a new manager. That's true. They might might have been thinking, well, you know, we'll just see how this goes because they don't have a hundred percent faith in a reunion either. No. And, and but they are still working towards it. And of course, they they know how to hype something like that. But that's all going to be in the very near future but before we get to that let's we got we got business on the table here yeah. and un, it also un, goes un, to show business but business all the same <laughs> but also goes to show that they don't 100% believe in the reunion yet well that's what i'm saying yeah yeah um 
so they're in the studio. This is all through the fall and winter of uh, 95 and 96. Yes. Um, and actually pretty uh, well documented on a bonus feature on one of the Kissology DVDs. Um, that's actually something I would love to see get released. So there's like that three and four hours worth of MTV unplugged rehearsal footage that's mm-hmm. been out there for years. I'd love to see more of the recording of the this record. Stuff. Because regardless, and I feel like y'all can agree with me on this, regardless of what the material is, there's not a lot of footage of Kiss in the studio. Yeah, of any it, sort. No. It would be very interesting, even for this lackluster record, to see Paul go through a full vocal take and how he responds to different things and the retakes and, right. and seeing Gene work through different bass parts. Even right. if we don't care about the material, seeing them work. The process. That yeah. would be so interesting. But we do get little glimpses of it in the Kissology. So that actually kind of helps give the album a touch bit more of life well, there's a, when yeah, there's none to I be agree, found here. But I think, you know, I, think, <laughs> yeah. I think one reason why they don't like that stuff or any act doesn't like that stuff is it kind of it it removes a little bit of the mystique yeah it, showing them how know, the sausage is made you know the idea is that you know you think that they go in and deliver that take all in one full take you know yeah it's like of any of anything you know, as, right. fans, like, as fans we love it but i can see how the layman might yeah, you don't and also you don't really want to yeah it's like what did you how did you just say you don't see how the sausage is made yeah yeah it's like you know uh, but then all three of us cool. but then all three of us that have had like you know studio time and know how the sausage is made is like okay i want to see them make the sausage yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's the process um this album they are recording apparently is gene's grand idea yes and the idea being that they should start from scratch as if they were a brand new band without any baggage or reputation Mm -hmm. to live up to. This just seems incredibly stupid to me. uh, Gene is known for his great concept record ideas. This just seems double (laughs) stupid to me because it's like, okay, y'all have just spent the last really almost now five years embracing, you know, the idea of classic kiss. You would think that, to that end, you would work towards kind of recapturing and recreating that sound because you know that's what people are responding to. But no. And also, no, that's not very that. contradictory to everything else they're doing for him to say, let's go with this like we're a new band without any baggage. After they just finished MTV Unplugged right. with the reunion. Right. That's what just, I mean. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's like. It's, it's like very contradictory. Been, it, I, could, I could see them going, okay, guys, you know, you know, we're going to have to make an album that sounds like classic Kiss. Almost like saying, you know, I mean, and I'm sure they would say it. I don't have any doubt in my mind. They'd be like, Bruce, you're going to have to play um, a, a, a more economical style. You know, <laughs> right. You're going to basically have to play Ace Frehley licks. Yeah. Yeah. Verbatim. You know, and this would be like, Eric, we want to capture that vibe. We need vibe. to get rid we of your double kick. <laughs> a very basic hard rock, you know, with a lot of anthemic rock and roll all night party every day. A little bit of R&B influence. The classic Kiss, you know, quote unquote formula from back in the day. The stuff that everyone seems to love so much. But no, instead, now they want to be a grunge band. 
Well, I mean, a, a, yeah, a decade prior, they wanted to be Bon Jovi. Now they want to be Soundgarden or Smashing Pumpkins. And this yeah. is even more insincere to me than even their hair metal it's era. So, yeah, that's so convoluted. It's just so, I mean. And this is what, 1996? I think grunge had like peaked and like kind of started to just die well, off in this time it's period, kind of too, just anyway. melded into this alternative thing. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting time for the recording industry. It's much like the late 60s. In the late 60s, you had a lot of uh, what they called garage rock groups that came out had a top 10 hit you know came from nowhere had their top 10 hit and went right back to nowhere and it's the same thing here now the industry standard is in the 70s it was okay we're going to sign a band we'll give them three albums to develop it's like okay they expected you know hope for a hundred thousand hundred fifty thousand on the first time out and keep incrementally growing until they got to the gold record status well that gold record status became the start point in the 80s yeah and you know we want you to get to that million seller. well then by the mid 80s late 80s we've talked about this bands were coming out of the gate with 12 million fucking sales mm-hmm. not kiss so kiss were basically kept going in reverse in a way and it's it in, in, in a how do i say this you know the scale keeps sliding, you know, every time they reach a standard that's good. No, and the scale gets slid up a little bit further than where they're at. So by this point in the, in the nineties, these bands are coming out of nowhere. These alternative bands, they get signed. They, they sell a million copies. They have a two or three little hits on modern rock radio. Yeah. On their, their uh, CDs with like 15 tracks on them. And yeah. Shit. But you have all these bands that had million selling records just out of the gate. Bands like, um, spin uh, doctors, spin doctors. Yeah. Head. Or, um, sponge or yeah um, um better than ezra and uh some of these bands are opening will end up opening for kiss on their reunion tour um stabbing westward all these bands that fuel just, yeah that, <laughs> you know i can remember i can't think of all their names i can hear some of the songs in my head but you know buzz ballads they're, compilation they're, they're, they're just all these bands that came up they had million selling records and then they just disappeared yep disposable um, it, was, it was that uh ice cream machine pop music well, like, that's what you here's know. A hit. They, here's and a if hit. you didn't, if you didn't sell a million copies, they just wrote you off. We have a friend that was in a band that they waited to get a, a, a multi-album deal, and that benefited them because their record didn't sell. They got signed to A and M. Their record didn't sell, and now the record company, since they had. A, uh, the the way the deal was structured, the record company ended up owing them money for undelivered material because they dropped them and they're like, here, take this money and go away. Yeah. And those guys were set up pretty good to go pursue other interests in life and did and still were successful. Yeah. That was not the norm. Um, uh, I the band Soundgarden had signed to I think A and M and failed to recoup their advance because people don't understand it. Advances an advance you have yeah. to pay that money yeah. back it's a loan <laughs> and i knew a friend of mine was on tour goes through a place in minneapolis and who's working in the kitchen guys from soundgarden he knew who they were and he's like what the fuck are you guys doing here and they're like well, we owe the record company money yeah and they're wow. working they're working menial labor jobs just to you know pay it back they obviously turned it around because yeah, they yeah. hopped on that that bandwagon that sold a million records but where where you know they finally did it but, but once it but was for done, a minute, they it was them. over. Yeah. Um, so that was not uncommon. And I'm sure that, that had to have been a tightrope that Kiss had to know they were going to be walking on 
with the in- industry being what it is. But to that end, they're going to make this record. Do you think Gene would be that knowledgeable to think that far ahead, or is he just looking at what's happening right they here, right now? They have to be aware that they're. I mean, they have to be this aware that twenty at years any of experience point, at this point, they could get dropped. Oh, just I'm talking like about uh, musically that it being so dated. I don't, I don't. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand why they wouldn't make. It seems to me the safer alternative here, not no pun intended, is to do a classic Kiss record, a very well, much a '70s styled. Maybe Kiss it's record. because Revenge was so well received, at least in the fan base. Like it in didn't the fan sell base, a but lot. It didn't sell. They're not interested in the fan base at all. But but they just got off the convention tour where they They're spoke still with not a lot of fans. In, it's, it, that's fine. But they, that if that were true, then they would definitely make this '70s style record. They're not interested in what the fans think. They're interested in a mainstream Why do you not acceptance. think they're interested in the fans think? Because if they got to... that. <laughs> you know, it's like, have you ever seen Crossroads, the movie Crossroads, where mm-hmm. Malf Macchio and the, and the just the part at the end. The yeah. old man's like, okay, he's like, he's like, what do I get? And he's making, he's trying to, he's trying to re- uh, renew his deal. He sold a soul to the devil, and he's like, what do I get? He's like, well, you got me. He's like, I've already got you. I don't need you. <laughs> I've got you. It's the same thing here. Kiss already has their fans. They already know that there's a base. That exists to this day. You could put a turd in a plastic bag with a Kiss logo on it, they, and those motherfuckers will buy they it. They sell air guitar strings. Yeah, for eight dollars. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> what they don't give a fuck about the fans because the fans are there. They don't care. It's just like when you go on the Kiss cruise, they give a fuck about fans. You go to the Kiss cruise. What are you going to see? Classic Kiss songs that they may have never even played before. Yeah. But when they go out on tour. You're not going to hear any of that shit. No. no because they don't give a fuck about who's the... <laughs> they don't. They no. just don't. It's getting all riled up. I, I agree with them. Kiss does not care about their fans at all. We can kiss getting any good guy. No, any I'm with them 100%. We're worried, we're worried about this episode being any good. But I'm not, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it in a bad way. I'm just no, saying no, it no. As, a, as a point of actual fact. I'm not saying they don't give a fuck about their fans. But what I'm saying is they know that's there. That's not the bottom line. They take line. it for granted. That's not their bottom line. That's just... That's you know well it, it kind of is a, it's a, it's their foundation and they know that they they're cool there they don't have to worry about that right the fans are gonna buy this shit you know and to a point we'll discuss that here at the end of this process here. yeah but so they're gonna make a grunge record they hire Toby Wright who was the producer of Alice Cha- Alice in Chains yeah and the plan is to make a dark heavy modern rock record that's the which one- means grunge yeah or allison change or the, very uh specifically with these guitar sounds yeah it's very much i mean and and when i say grunge i mean the mtv ver- we've talked about the div- the divergence, divergence yeah. of, of punk rock and this um kiss wants to make their grunge record and they want to cash in and they want to cash in big and so the irony and the hypocrisy is so rich that you can kind of gag on this <laughs> yeah and that's kind of how i felt about this whole record too i mean I think it kind of we can probably when we go into these uh, tracks uh, specifically and uh, point out little things that we might like about it. I think the Gene songs kind of work in this lens, but with Paul, it just feels even more like a yeah, reach. Well, my, my favorite, I, I think 
as much as I know this record very well, the reason I really dug into it in early age is because of such the anomaly that we'll get into at the tail end of this. That's what made me so curious about it right. and really dig in and listen a lot when I was younger. But that doesn't necessarily mean I enjoy the record. And I think Paul's quote on this really sums it up best. He goes, Kiss writing a doom and gloom record? What do we have to write about this being doom and gloom? What, that our butler showed up late? <laughs> well, I don't know, because we talked about how they, they've kind of struggled through the last, uh, you know, 15 years at this point. But, uh, but it's also interesting how Paul kind of admits, kind of backhandedly, because it's just a bad record anyway, but admits that he had a hard time writing this record, that he doesn't like his own contributions to the record, but just put it in anyway. So it's kind of a flip. Gene really liked his material for once, and Paul was kind of phoning it in. Yeah, yeah I think it fits Gene. If Gene did this as a solo record, it might be a little bit more forgivable. But this is yeah, produced. you know, you're right. Yeah, well, you know who this really feels like it's a record of more than anybody? Bruce. Bruce. Bruce, yeah. Well, um, because Bruce plays a lot of bass and guitar on this and record. He wrote, <laughs> he wrote a lot of this, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's not a jab at Bruce because, um, well, well, we'll we'll get to that to the summary. Yeah. Um, but this is recorded at a place called Music Grinder Studios in Hollywood, which I've never, ever heard, ever heard of before. And it seems an abnormally long time, even for Kiss standards. They spend, what, four months making this thing? November to February. Well, you have to well, imagine. Three months, maybe, if you were. Yeah, they, cut out yeah. Christmas and New Year era. But it's still kind of a... Although there is footage of them in the studio with Bruce with a Santa hat on, so they were recording close to Christmas, at least. And, again... They're also negotiating a complete whole other thing. So they are literally Especially playing. If Peter, if Peter got contacted in December, they're exactly. literally in the middle of it. They're like, all right, see you later, Bruce. All right, get Peter on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no, I don't think there's any cl- way that Eric and Bruce didn't know about all this going on at the they, same time, too. Okay, since we're kind of still on that, they've discussed it a little bit. They said they had a feeling, but at the same time, we're willing to just go at it with blinders on because they wanted the record to be done. And 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 we have to note the thing that everyone seems to forget and has to remember these aren't members of KISS. They're just employees. Yeah. As much as you want to romanticize the idea of KISS as a band you know, we're all in it together. No, no, they're the employees. Moment, the moment the end of the day, Kiss. There's only two members in Kiss as a legal entity as since a band. the eighties, since 1982, since the time Ace Frehley left. Kiss is Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Kiss is not a band; they are a duo. That is true to this day. Mm-hmm. And I know people hate that; they don't want to accept that. But trust me. Anyone and everyone, including Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer, are instantly and disposable in, if need be. And, in a, and they will not blink twice to serve a, that in. And in a year, they're going to have two employees named Peter Chris Cola and Paul yep. Fraley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're going to have a really hard time with that concept. <laughs> but anyway. But let's, these two employees were starting to actually feel comfortable in their spots. Like, and, and why wouldn't they? Because, I mean, you're given a lot of creative leeway. But we've talked about this in the past. That was Vinnie Vincent's hang up. He was given a ton of creative leeway, and rightly so and yet they would not allow him to become a full-fledged member of the band and yep. so he wouldn't sign his contract and, and again for all the personality differences or whatever who can blame him if it's what you want you know and he was willing to walk away yeah and he did 
And um, yeah, and Bruce kind of talked about it. He goes, he kind of felt on the outside until revenge. Revenge is when it felt like he said he finally gelled with the band and felt like a member, and that this was going to be the record where he finally stepped out some. Well, and I think part of that was because they really didn't know what the fuck to do, and they needed someone else to outside write. And mm-hmm. this was somebody that they probably could also retain at a lower rate than another outside writer like a Desmond Child. Or yeah. Yeah, I'm could, sure there's a financial benefit in yeah, that somewhere. Yeah, because yeah. if you go through like the songwriting credits of this album, it's a it's a bunch of like uh, names I could only find on like Discogs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and at least send a track one. So first song is called Hate, which pretty strong title for a opening yeah, track it's a gene song too so out of straight out of the shoot we've got drop detuning and clip metalized riffing mm-hmm. and this really sounds like it could be an outtake from revenge yeah yeah so this is not quite as anomalous as the rest of this record's gonna sound like it, honestly it's very metal sounding though yeah i was gonna say a uh, spoiler this hate and one other to me it feels like if they had made it an ep and like had those be like the two mains and maybe filled it in with one or two others, this would be a lot more forgivable because the riff in this is kind of cool. It's, it's just not a kiss riff. It's a, it, it, Well, that's the way this whole record works, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, uh, it, well, that's the way Kiss has worked for the last 15 years. It's again. Yeah. And then you go, well, the, how could it not be Kiss if they've been doing it for this long? Well, every era is a little. It, there's always a shift. Yeah. And there's and it's and like that, there's some metal stuff I like. And it's like when I listen to this, I go, it's a cool riff. Like it's if a, a good, different band it, played it. It's a decent it. opening track. But if yeah, it feels like to me this would work really well for another band. Yeah. I feel like this, yeah, yeah, like this whole record could in a lot of ways. And I, and I feel like almost every song is going to suffer from a very forgettable chorus. Because you don't remember the chorus at all on this. You remember the verse because of the interesting little drum pattern. Which we've talked about seems to be their MO in songwriting. And it's no different here. It's like, I can't really remember the solo to this. I just remember the overall vibe it had. And right. it was... Just interesting and cool. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I feel like I'm gonna have a similar response to like a lot of a good majority of the tracks on this album. I have my favorites by both Gene and Paul on it, but for the most part, one thing this album suffers from is there's not a lot of diversity of guitar tones or keys and stuff like that. So as a result, they kind of meld together. Yeah. But hate overall is like you know a decent you know Gene song for an attempt to sound like a grown song, but yeah. but that's it really. Next track is called Rain. <laughs> this sounds like, you know, when I was listening to this record, this was a song that even came on today that kind of matched the tone of, you know, what's going on right, uh, right now. It's just like, you know, it's a mess outside. And dark. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, Overcast. it's like you said just a minute ago, and all the songs sort of go to this. There's no real song here. Yeah. Except for the middle eight, and that's not a good song. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a collection of riffs that seemingly just have been stapled together out of like scraps to me it feels like okay i have this i have this well if we you know put it in the same key well there you go we can go from that to you know and mm-hmm. it doesn't really jive well so right, Mary, and this this Mary, kind of material is just not paul's no, strong suit and that's why it feels a little off like i mentioned earlier where like the paul songs are a little bit more jarring than jeans because like his vocal tone does not match this kind of style of music at all i don't think yeah all right barry get ready so 
on the Kissology uh, DVD, there is an outtake that actually makes the song a little better. It gives it a dynamic. During the chorus, Paul just lets it belt. Just like, I think it's going to rain. Yeah, I think right. it's going to rain. There's a clip on there of Gene and Eric in the vocal booth. In between Paul's, he goes, I think it's going to rain. I think it's going to rain. Oh, they did. They were doing yeah. Uh-huh. Rain. Like that, they, they were doing kind of like call and response background yeah. things, and it added a bit more dynamic to it. And that would have actually been more interesting. Otherwise, this song is boring as hell. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have improved it any, but uh, you, you stumbled on a point. There seemed like vocal patterns that were very common to the Alice in Chains sound. Yeah, yeah all that, a lot of harmonizing, uh, too. All things. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah, what it is. Hoping you're which right. became Which became the, uh, the bedrock for all these shitty bands like Nickelback and Creed and everything else. I mean, they're all rooted in the Alice in Chains thing more than mm-hmm. anything else, which goes to show just how influential Alice in Chains proved to be. Love them or hate them, it's ir- irrelevant. That's yeah. just their, you know. That's that, just what happened. That's <laughs> what happened. I found a positive, which mm-hmm. I just remembered thinking about the outtakes. This is my second favorite era of Paul Vocal. Because by this point, he had a shift. He's not doing his 80s vocal anymore, if you notice, even on his high notes. It's not his 80s vocal. He has a 90s vocal. It's a little deeper. It's a a 90s vocal that's that's trying to sound like somebody else. But no, on the middle part on this, on that, you know, open your eyes. When he gets to that really high, screamy falsetto bit... It sounds like the I Still Love You bit from MTV Unplugged, which I think is extremely strong. Mm-hmm. So I think he's found a new way to push his high vocal without it being that tone that only dogs can hear. So benefit on my end is even though they're kind of boring songs, there's glimmers of some really good Paul performances. Still sounds weird with this music. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying sorry. to find to a me, positive. Goddamn it! I understand <laughs> that, but it's like okay, he's got he's got some tools in the box, but if you can't use them, what's what, what good are they? Yeah, he'll use them. Or in if a year. you got them, I mean, you know, so you got nothing to use them on. Yeah. It's like the Bruce Kulick guitar solos; they're all good, but that doesn't make the song any better. It's like going, well, I've got this. Uh, you know what? I got this car jack. I'm going to just change my tire for the hell of it. <laughs> you know what I mean it's like what, yeah. why that's the way this whole album sort of works Master and Slave I like um, the riff on this one really really good riff but that's about it <laughs> well I wrote listening to this makes me wonder if they played in standard tuning with better lyrics would it have worked maybe mm. I get that vibe. there's a couple of songs on this album that I really got that vibe off of I'm like you know and that's what made me start thinking you know if they had done the approach of doing a, a more 70s stylized kind of you know we're going to try to recapture what we were doing in the 70s but mm-hmm. with this lineup rather than do the scrunch thing there are riffs here that would have served that really well I think I have mm-hmm. one in mind that's like that later on too so but this song is the reverse of their problems I feel like the intro and the chorus is strong the verses are limp it's when it just goes to just the straight kick and the bass right. and Paul's like right right but and here's what I thought when I was listening to that was you know what it, it, even in this arrangement you know this would have served a female vocal I think really really well yeah. and, and Paul could do uh, you know it's like it would serve kind of a sensual quality that a female could do really well 
it, it, Paul could probably play that in a different way, but it he doesn't just wasn't work in here. That mindset. It just doesn't here, you know, and the, and the lyrics are kind of like, you know, it's like they're trying to be deep, but instead it's just pretentious. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I could see that was the other impression I got. I was like, you know, I don't mind that vocal pattern. I just could hear that suiting a female voice. Again, to a much, song for a different band. For a different band. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm not knocking the songwriting here. I'm knocking it as a Kiss album. Yeah. And everything I'm judging this is against Kiss itself. Yeah. You know, if this, this would have been, I, and, and, you know, and I was going to get to this in the summary but this could have been a really successful album for another band yeah, yeah. it wouldn't necessarily be an album that i like but i can appreciate the quality it of wouldn't what be among so many of the stinkers it'd be like well in this era at least there was this that was a little bit more listenable and this just is so anomalous for kiss yeah even to what they've been doing childhood mm-hmm. end is the next song See, this is the one i felt like uh uh, adds to the point that you were talking about it. This that they did this with a direct hard rock approach, I think would have been a better song. This is actually my favorite on the record. It's my really? favorite Gene song for sure. I think I think it's a strong Gene vocal. I like what they did during the verse where all of a sudden it's the clean guitar. Little, is this the part where is this the one that goes tell me when da, 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 mm-hmm. da, okay. Yeah. No, no. Is it? It's the one that sounds kinda like I'm tell 18. Me. No, no, no. That that uh, that's Master and Slave. Childhood's in. Oh, see, I'm, it shows you how these just blur in my head. <laughs> no, the the dun, 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 dun. that's oh, Master yeah, and Slave. Okay. I didn't. See, this one has Childhood's the, end is the slower one with Gene. Boom, 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 boom. But then it's not. Oh, not yeah. Okay, okay. That's yeah. That's my favorite on the record. It feels a little. It feels like classic Gene writing with a grunge lens. Yeah, and Barry Hannibal so much material. I know. <laughs> but I had, I had to refresh your mind. <laughs> but this, no, I like the verses on this. It was really cool. It's a good Gene voice, even just the so what? Never matter to you. I have I have written that it's just a bad song. Really? Start to finish. Weak melody that goes nowhere and does nothing memorable. And more importantly, and this is the impression, because I had, you know, when when we, when we I started preparing my notes for this, this was like a month or so ago, and I had to re-listen to it again, which I did today. The things he does for you listeners. <laughs> and so I've listened to this album twice now. <laughs> <laughs> me too. You, you're I've forever a changed that. man. But, but that song to me most out of everything on this record, and I wrote this today, it sounds dated. It sounds it very really much of its time, which is the 90s. And I think that's always bad when when you make music of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I it'll, to a lot it'll, of arts. it'll always be stuck in that time. Um but I don't know. Something about this one, like, again, it's my favorite on the right. It feels like more time was spent with this, like, songwriting-wise. It felt more earnest. It felt like maybe this was, like, one of the first ones written for the era kind of thing. Like, it just kind of felt like it flowed when the rest of them felt forced. It's like Some I, of these songs feel really forced. Yeah, this, this one felt like it just kind of flowed and, like, Gene was just kind of strumming and just turned, because you know is what he fucking does, sounds, and just turned his boombox on yeah, and I don't know, went. because I can't remember it off the top of my head at this point, but I didn't. Uh, after two listens, it, neither one of them did, did any good for me. The next song is called I Will Be There, which I think must be Paul writing a song because... of his About his kid. About yeah, kid. it's about his son. Um, he's that's this is my favorite Paul's track on the album just because of how like you know it's not 
it's not a super heavy one. It's an acoustic. It's an acoustic it, one. And it does it, this one's genuine, too. It immediately doesn't scream the era. It just sounds like an acoustic Paul song. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I, I've, I realized after the second listen that I came away with a different impression than I did from the first one. Same here. Um, I, but both of them still, I just, the song sort of meanders for me. I mean, they all kind of do, but if I had to pick a Paul song that I really like, at least this one feels more genuine because it is about a, like a serious subject that he's, you know, it's his and, son that he's taking you know, to take I, very I get seriously. That and I can appreciate that. So, but the, so the lyric of that doesn't really bother me, but it still seems a little kind of odd just from a Kiss vibe. Um, you know, my initial impression was he was kind of wallowing in a, in a in an acoustic Zeppelin worship because it, it, at first it kind of brought to mind something like the Battle of Evermore, not lyrically the, but musically. Or, yeah, I can or, see. or the Rain song, or especially rain when you song. see the yeah. uh, studio footage. Um, but even you know, but today uh, my second listen, I didn't really get that vibe as much. So I kind of was like, I don't know what gave me that impression, but other than what I just said, so I don't know if that was really kind of a vibe he was going for here or not, or if that just sort of just seeped through because I know that's an influence. But I, I think another Sean Paul vocal, especially on uh, after the solo, which by the way, best solo on the record was an acoustic one for like this is the one solo I really remember, and it's a Bruce one, and it's really good. But as soon as it comes out of the solo, Paul just starts belting, mm. especially with that. Who I would be there, yeah, and just yeah. start super strong, and it just again goes to show that he's got a different tonality for the '90s, and it's better than his '80s tone. Nothing beats the '70s, but it's better than his '80s. It's yeah. an improvement. Next track is called Jungle, and, and this was the uh, single that was released. Was it? Wasn't yes. It? Uh, in fact, uh, your son Cody Ward actually has a CD single of this. He must have got it from me. <laughs> then at like, one point, you're, yeah, you're, I, well, you had a CD single of this. And I, I remember who gave it to me and when I got it. Yeah. yeah. Because I, but I thought it had Master and Slave on it. It may have also, but I remember Dude, it I had, had a jungle CD on single it. and yeah, because it was when I was going through my big time nerd thing and I was hanging out with Cody so one day and was I was like, like, and they released this really weird like, grunge record. He goes, yeah, I got a CD of. I was like, no, you don't. He's like, look at this, and like showed it to him. I was like, oh, where did you get that? Where did you? Get? It's like, I don't know. I was just in my turn around. We'll look and find that it's like worth. Five hundred dollars on yeah. the line or something, and, and, right? and then like a whole bunch of like twelve and thirteen year olds are like smearing it with their Cheeto hands. <laughs> I just, I just, all I remember from this is it's got that again. It's a dated nineties that he we It's just not good at all. This is actually the one I skipped the most. It's not a good song, and just odd lyrics and like even just the. The effect that's on the bass, the bass kind of has like this watery kind of. It's not a. It's not a wah, but it's like some weird kind of like effect. Yeah, yeah, almost dreamy, wavy effect, like a little and chorus then, effect. To me, if you were to say, "What is the most '90s sounding guitar tone and riff?" It's the intro riff to this song. That down, down, down. To me, it's just the most '90s guitar riff ever. So no, I, I usually. Even on my reviews, I actually skipped this one every time. <laughs> so I didn't spend any time with the song. Pretty dated, but a lot of these fucking songs are. <laughs> Next track is called In My Head. God of Thunder Part 3. <laughs> well, no, because, I mean, it's I, the lyric is about... I'm like, is this what Gene thinks teenagers are thinking right. and feeling <laughs> in 1996? You know? I mean, the question here is, who's the target audience for this? 
I mean, folks who listen to Alice in Chains and Nirvana, let, man. Let me let me kind of maybe put who's this. The only, who's the only target audience in their head? In their head. In their. Oh, okay, I, I'm I'm gonna throw a different idea at you. I think Gene is being earnest on this. I think I, when I Gene mentally gets to a place, he feels everything he mentioned because think about the artwork he draws even still today he draws a lot of that kind of line sketchy demon-esque stuff i think when he gets to a certain place he can pull these type of lyrics and feel that way was it him or was it all uh tommy thayer's singer jamie st james who gets a fucking co-write on this yeah this who knows i i i get it but it just seems it's like also oh, featured you know, on the kids, Inn. they feel really angsty and alienated now because, you know, it's like the grunge kids will go around going, no one understands me. Well, let no him get me. Well, let him pull from his old, this and let him pull from his classic feelings of being an immigrant. And even with the whole idea of, you know, wearing the makeup, look behind the mask. I feel it's kind of autobiographical with a little bit, you know. You that's know, that's a stylized, fair observation. That's stylized. a fair observation. I, I don't know. I think it's solid for a gene track on this on this record. This is probably my second it's favorite. It's very crunchy. Crunchy crunchy is one of my favorite words. As my kids my kids probably don't listen to this, but it's a kind of a joke. I the word crunchy comes from the movie Charlotte's Web, uh, Paul Lynn. The, the voice of Templeton the Rat. I didn't. And, I and never knew he, that. He, he's bringing words for Charlotte to write in the web, and he brings the word crunch. <laughs> oh, that's great. And it still makes me laugh. <laughs> and the way he says it, here's that word for you, crunchy. I watched that movie so many times as a kid, I never put that together. Oh, <laughs> that was Jesus. Paul Lynn. <laughs> uh, anyway, you can, you can cut that out. No, let's go with It never goes away, which is true. The stupidity <laughs> never goes away. No. <laughs> Just drones. This is a very droning song. Yes. It's mm-hmm. so boring. Mm-hmm. A lot of these songs, when I did the re-listen today, I got about three minutes into it and went like, all right, I got it. This it, was one it, of them. This is a long record. Yeah. Very this long. This is an hour and change. Yeah. <laughs> is this, this might be the longest one. We, we know Hot in the Shade was an hour. Yeah. We talked about that. I think it was like an hour on the dot. Um, you got anything to add to that? Honestly, I don't. This is one of the other final ones. I really just had nothing to say. It, this one is also the most forgettable next to Jungle. Yeah, it just in drones. My it's a weird yeah. song because it's like got that drone. I don't know. I really have nothing to say about it. Uh, Seduction of the Innocent. I got some shit to say about this one. Well, apparently okay. this is... Now, you talked about Gene's feelings, blah, 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 blah. This is rooted in something Gene wrote as a teenager, apparently. And it definitely changed channels the Beatles which we know he loves to do but I don't think it does it with much success usually his Beatles influence yields something if not good at least marginally interesting something you can like uh, gravitate towards with your ear and everything but for me personally I found this to be mucked down with too much bullshit pretension especially during the verses that's my problem with it I love the chorus to the song. Mm-hmm. I like his vocal melody over what Bruce decided to put behind it. That dun, 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 dun. he kind of like does a little walk down bend thing. Very tasteful. It's not overdone, but it complements Gene's vocal melody. 
and it just kind of flowed and was really nice. The verses are horrible with just that kind of droney guitar and almost kind of the bongos in the background yeah. and shit. I, I, I don't suffer through that. I can't stand that. But the ver- the chorus is real. I like it, especially with everything else that's on this record. I th- again, it just feels like the Gene moments really work. And this is one of the few Gene moments that if I could just – it's a – Okay, here's a good way to describe it. It's a perfect ringtone. There's a good 30... A ringtone? Yeah, seriously. There's wait, a, wait, wait. I was like, what part? <laughs> there's a solid 30 a seconds. A ringtone, like for your cell phone. There's 30 seconds of a good song in there. How long is a ringtone? 30 seconds. I don't know. But I, would, I, <laughs> I don't know that that's a, that's a very good uh, earmark of quality. But, but hey, you, know, you know, it's not a good song, but hey, you know what? Could be an excellent ringtone. I, I, I use that just as an uh, like a timestamp thing, man. Like there, there's a ringtone's worth of good song in this, and it's like if he had just expanded it. on it, it would have been better. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of like uh, everybody else at the table. I don't have like a whole lot of thought on this really at all, outside of like the comments we have been like putting to death. But we brought up the point about how there's bongos and stuff. They tr- they swing for the fences with ideas on this record too, with orchestras. And yeah, and in Childhood's End, he had a whole. Uh, they kind of revisited the Destroyer thing of having the child the choir. choir in there. You see a, a footage of Paul fucking with kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. With with the with the kids. <laughs> As, as in teasing. Messing with them. Mess, messing with them. This isn't messing getting better, with them. This is, you, you mean he's joking and teasing? Joking. Yes. yes. There we go. Yeah, uh, that's actually a really funny bit because you see all the kids going into like the big room where like the drums are usually this set up. This is getting up. more and more creepy. <laughs> just, just wait for it. Just I know what I, I, well, let me tell the story for folks that don't have the uh, series. But yeah, all the kids are going in to do their big chorus bit and they're like messing with the microphones and stuff. You even see like the music instructor be like quit touching things quit touching and they're still just doing it Paul gets over the top back and just yells quit touching everything and like the, every kid is yeah, just like shrinking in their seats like oh shit and meanwhile Paul's just like <laughs> yeah he's like chuckling he's like hey, hey, hey. got um, your ass <laughs> before we get out of the seduction of the innocent that title it's so awkward <laughs> it, well it's copped from a book that was written in the 1950s mm-hmm. that was uh highly critical of comic books and led to the comics uh, the comic code authority yep the little stamp you see on the corner uh, but the okay. song has nothing to do with any of that i think it was very loosely inspired by that though yeah um but He's a, a lot of guy too, i just think so. it's a interesting little side note hmm. um it's funny how you know 30 years later it went from comic books to you know the PMRC. Yeah. <laughs> um, next track is called "I Confess," and I do. I confess, I don't like it. <laughs> Co-written by Ken Templin, who has vocal training videos on YouTube. I did not know that. Yep, I remember him uh, being uh, made fun of on like on a Tosh Point episode of all things. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I think. Um, I've written that here on my notes. I said, ironically, as the raw material to be a decent kiss song, or perhaps more to the point, a decent gene song. And so that maybe makes it the best song on the album for me. But I didn't get that vibe. That was worked that off first listen. Today I didn't I disagreed with that sentiment. Um I don't like it, even though I feel it's 
I don't know. If it, if it is the best song on the album, that's not saying anything at all. Uh, yeah. It's kind of feel about that like my sense? take too. Yeah. Like I just it just didn't work for me. If it was a Kiss song, it'd probably be a job, uh, you know, a uh, solid Gene song if they really like well, that's tried what to. I just said. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 it's yeah, the yeah. best I could go with. I don't know. I, this one to me just felt lazy. Like out of all the Gene songs, mm-hmm. like it felt like he put in an effort for once with some right. of these songs this one felt like he just fell back into his uh here's I, something i need i need one more right fuck <laughs> it really well, kind of fell that into goes that in, we talked about the length here it's like was it necessary to include absolutely not you know, is there in, in, in are there outtakes other songs they recorded that weren't used yeah that means this was chosen over something else. Yeah, there's like how in bad. Fact, how bad is the outtake? Well, you you want to know one of the outtake songs? Mm. Within, interesting. Yes, hmm. within was recorded that and makes written sense. during this that time makes period. Sense. Okay, well, we'll so that's an outtake. Keep that for future note. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mirror, is this extreme? <laughs> <laughs> Did I mean, we leave them behind on "Kiss My Ass"? It is kind of like the more. Uh, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> I didn't get an extreme vibe off of that. That's hilarious. Well, I, you know, this has some raw material to be a good Kiss song, but the approach and direction is just too fucked up sounding. It's just too modern. It, it, well, I was gonna say it's, it's interesting. too much it's, of a modern alternative rock style that they're foolishly exploring. It's oddly up tempo, uh, or it's. It's oddly at a higher BPM than the rest of the record. Yeah, if that it, makes it, sense, it, it feels like a faster song than the rest of the whole record. And who's the target audience with something like this? Honestly, I would see a lot, and this isn't a huge slam. It's a little slam, but it's not a big one. In areas like Agaffney, South Carolina. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Gastonia, North Carolina. You, you know what I mean, no, though. You could see them listen to this, being like, "Man, this record's fucking hey, bad." Did you hear that new Kiss song? A song mm. called uh, "It's called uh, In the Mirror." In the Mirror, <laughs> Jackson, Man. Tennessee. But you know, there's a potential here. There's a riff there that I could see being worked again with the original group to a different, different mm-hmm. strength. And it may have been something. So the potential is just lost here. Yeah, it's like they're just grasping in air grasping at whatever they can get and it's working just, ideas because it's like that they don't know what to do or how to do it yeah no i agree just suffers the same thing as all the rest of them that's why it's just a hard record to kind of dive into and and i say this with love with with the last one i'll walk alone not only is that the title but looking at the credits it really feels like bruce has kind of turned to eric and went i want to do something Okay, last song, I Walk Alone. It's kind of a stupid title. And it's like a 12 year old's notebook back page scribblings, like, ah, no one, I walk alone. This is what happens when you let the lead guitar player write a song. (laughs) What you trying to say, (laughs) Cap? Well, it's cool for a 12 year old to do that. Yeah. It's not so cool for Kiss. Um, This is Bruce's lead vocal debut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not a bad one. No. In fact, I actually prefer his vocal. I think his vocal would have served this whole album better if he sang lead on all of these songs. I mean, imagine yeah. him doing like the, the, or at least him doing like the quiet part of Master and Slave and then let Paul pick in for the yeah, heavy or, chorus. Yeah, it works. So you could have given him more room. But, um, and curiously to me, on my second listen, you know what it brought brought to mind to me? 
His vocal style, Ace. Yeah, a little bit. I can that, hear that. Oh, it's, wow. it's, it, and what I th- and what I found myself liking best about it is it was it, it's not a it doesn't have that train you know rock and roll to me is is very bass it's it, you know for lack of a better term vocal music it's like okay you can carry melody well enough you can be the singer right you can do this oh you can play you can, oh you know three or four chords you can be the guitar player mm-hmm. you know rock and roll is supposed to be accessible that's what makes rock and roll great you know and 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 it got to this point particularly by the 80s and i think we've talked about this in previous previous episodes where there's this snobbishness that you have to have some sort of european uh you know neoclassical music ethic that you know you shouldn't even approach the guitar unless you can play you know the the, yeah and it ruined rock and roll it killed it for me that's why all those 80s bands fucking suck or the ones that even though maybe it was worse when they tried to meld the two ideas together but when it gets to its base and it's people that are singing and doing because it's something they're passionate about it comes from a different place it, it isn't necessarily that they can do it play really well mm-hmm. but they are capable of doing great things within the confines of what they know how to do that does to that end that does not make this a good song nor does it make a good a good rock song no. but it is a good solid vocal from bruce, bruce. and to yeah. me it's and the- it's a sad thing because not only is this his first mm-hmm lead vocal on an album this is also at the same time his farewell track which yeah. makes this track very interesting it kind of makes it more bittersweet it yeah. is in it, retrospect it, it, my second time listening to it i almost felt sad right yeah. <laughs> because I, all the interviews and stuff i see with bruce he seems like he's a solid cool dude you know yeah. i'm not a fan of his playing style i'm not a fan of the way he approaches a lot of this stuff but as a person, as an individual, see, I, I can separate the two. So yeah. if I say, oh, he sucks, I don't think Bruce Kulick sucks. Yeah. I think he's an excellent guitar player, but he's not to what I think makes good rock and roll music. Right. But he also seems like a really cool person. I, mm-hmm. I'm not cutting yeah. on him. And and ironically, for all of the all of the, the things I don't like about his guitar style is here he has a vocal style that I, I, I found myself <laughs> enjoying. <laughs> going to. But yeah, it's uh, Bruce's swan uh, swan song, and here we are now uh, in the uh, Kiss timeline where uh, the Bruce Kulick uh, guitar uh, contributions are are done. Yeah, and in a weird, so it's like they finally wrap up the record, and so this is usually about the time in the show we dig into you know where the tour date and you know how big or successful it was. But for the very first time, this record doesn't even come out. Well. Let's kind of summarize this whole thing because um, these songs are long. They're all long songs. Mm-hmm. None of them are like two and a half minute type stuff that they would have done in 1975. Yeah. I mean, this is the complete antithesis of Address to Kill. Uh, they're pretentious, mm-hmm. which, okay, you can be pretentious if you can back maybe it back up. it up with something you know of a of a certain intelligence that doesn't necessarily make it good but at least you can understand it but what's worse you know if it's interesting well these aren't interesting these are no. boring mm-hmm. and there's nothing worse nothing exciting than being boring yeah and at 60 minutes i think this is the longest album of any art incarnation of the band from what i understand if, yeah. if i if i have it right I think it's, it's even right. longer than hot, hot in the shade, shade. And um, and more boring than hot in the shade. More, <laughs> hot in the shade. 
At least there was a couple little glimmers on there. There was nothing glimmers on Hot in the Shade. That record sucked. But at least (laughs) there's like, you know, major key kind of like, you know, excitement to a point. Yeah, they were trying. You know, I don't know. It at least had a little more life. But yes, this record stays shelved for a full 18 months. And it only gets released to curb the burgeoning bootleg market. Yeah, exactly. So I want to personally get into that one. Well, it's bootlegging on the equally burgeoning internet, which is a new, th- mm-hmm. relatively pretty, pretty well a new thing for mm-hmm. most people. It's, and it's like, and around this time period, I mean, we didn't even talk about it too much on the unplugged episode, but it's like, even during that time on the internet, you were starting to get rumors and buzz saying, "Hey, Ace and Peter are going to be at the MTV Unplugged thing." Like, I, we we know this is going to happen. This isn't a rumor. Like, you know, this is going to happen. They're just not talking about it. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So that that even got out there to the public about a month or two before it actually. But happened. That also goes to show how limited the influence the internet had. If mm-hmm. I guess if people had it, they knew. I exactly. didn't know about it until I read about it in a magazine. So di- so crazy how the internet's changed yeah. from even then. Yeah. So around the same time period after MTV. Unplugged, the rumors started circulating that, oh, there's probably going to be a reunion. At the same time, rumors of a new Kiss record is also going to be happening with Bruce and Eric. So the community that's online and kind of knows about it already have already heard that this is coming. Gene has kind of discussed it a little bit in interviews. And then all of a sudden the reunion happens, which we'll get into in the next episode, but this is still connected to Carnival of Souls. So the reunion happens and the record just never gets discussed. Don't they show some mock-up uh, yes. mock of the album cover on the Kiss, Kiss My, My Ass? So that's two years before that album even gets recorded? Mm-hmm. That's really bizarre. So they were already kind of working up the ideas, because originally the record was going to be called Head, yeah, and it well, kind of had that weird gimp mask. Well, they also had the uh, the name... Um, was so, maybe they seduction of the innocent also considered for an album title possibly i can't remember i saw there's there was a number of different mm-hmm. album titles so around the same like in the middle of the reunion tour like I, the, the guys are already back on the road all of a sudden a cassette tape copy leak starts making its way around the collector's market not online is this but during ca- the reunion tour? During the reunion tour, a cassette tape copy starts making its way through the bootleg community no one really knows where it came from. And this is purely speculation. But there are interviews with Eric Singer around say, 1999. <laughs> I've got a quote here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go Eric, ahead. Eric, Eric was uh, asked if the album would ever see proper release. And he said, oh, yeah, the album's in the can. And then bitterly added, the garbage can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was not real happy about this reunion business. And- I say that he lost his job, so I can see being upset, but he can't be so ignorant as to not realize that that was going to happen. Here's my thing. This is why I actually did not mention Eric at all when we were talking about the way they felt during this time. That's why I mentioned Bruce was kind of feeling his way into it. I intentionally didn't mention Eric because I find it very interesting that Bruce was in the band longer. He finally was a little bit more comfortable with it, but his talked about in interviews since then he's like you know it hurt but you know I, I was just happy to see the band you know back together i wanted to see that lineup play so you know i just you know i enjoyed my time with the band but it was it was time for it to be done you know yada yada eric seemed to have kind of taken it personally when 
he really is the session guy. He's the guy that pops in, plays with the band for about three to four years, he, dips and is on to the next yeah, thing. Yeah, it's been his whole it, career. He oddly took this one personal enough to potentially, don't know for sure, but potentially have leaked the record himself. Well, I mean, and... and what, this is his first big You have gig? to also wonder what the, the, the Gene and Paul were telling them. Yeah, well, you know what, what, what's going on. Uh, you know, probably not gonna. But who knows? Mm-hmm. They might have felt like they were lied to. Maybe. And and who knows? We weren't a part of that process. I no. don't like to get into that kind of no, stuff. No, but but I just found the bootleg thing really interesting because again, it was going to be a weird anomaly of a Kiss record that was potentially always shelved. But, but there was no song titles attached to it. Didn't the song titles sort of? kind of become kind of fan assigned yeah just a bit it was just track one track yeah. two like they were able to kind of denote some of them like they already called hate hate because that okay. was just the first word that mm-hmm. he said um and i think they were able to kind of connect the dots with some of other interviews from gene and paul kind of discussing song titles or like oh well that must be this but no there was there was a lot of discrepancies in it and there was also some stuff that didn't show up on the record uh, stuff like weird outro, like instrumental outros that didn't show up later to like the box set and things like that. So the tape actually had some interesting, cool things until the Kiss box set came out. Well, and it's all interesting for by the time we're recording this as a little side note, it was the first Kiss record, a full Kiss record to be leaked in the middle of a whole bunch of YouTube leaks that are happening right now that is satisfying the 70s and us while we're oh, having to deal oh, with the yeah, 90s. The, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> it's just oddly poetic. Right. Come on, we're a KISS podcast. We have to mention the fact it's even happening. We're not going to dedicate an episode on it, but wow, holy shit, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. There's, <laughs> it's uh, really as cool. As we record this, and, and, and as any KISS fan knows, there is a, a giant dump of unreleased and unseen KISS videos being uploaded to YouTube the hows and whys behind it are being hotly debated and we won't discuss it here. I have no interest in the, in the drama we're, behind but we're it. Just but as a the fan, fruits. it's yeah, we are enjoying the fruit daily. Um, <laughs> finally, this album is quietly released with no fanfare or promotion whatsoever. I think they made like one magazine. I've seen one ad and it was, it was released on October 28th, 1997. And surprisingly it peaked as high as number 27. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wonder if people were just buying it off the idea that's of the reunion. Your kiss, oh, yeah. That's your no, I, that is your Kiss Army fan base. You know, I say they oh, don't care about their fans, yeah. but you know their fans are going to come out. They're going to buy it. It's going to push it real high. They always peak at a certain point straight away, very and then quick, immediately dip. and then immediately disappears, which is exactly what this does. And it disappears into obscurity, having not sold two hundred thousand copies. <sighs> Which is a which now would be a reason to celebrate, yeah. Which is ironic, but um, but we, this album again, it's the most anomalous record. It's a bizarre record, and and not just because it was their attempt at trying to do a modern grunge rock thing or whatever you want to call it, but it was also done at a time when they were working towards another end. They were clearly moving towards the inevitable reunion tour of the original band. Which of course is the reason for all of this, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just interesting to go back and reflect on something that just never seemed to um, it was never really meant to be in a weird way. Yeah, and I have one interesting last little PS to all this, and it's a, what initially sent me down this path of trying to figure out what this record was all about. Fast forwarding a couple years. 
Kiss did a online video game. It was kind of like a point and click adventure where you could choose your own path. Mm-hmm. At the very end of the game, you heard Master and Slave. But this was with the makeup characters. With the makeup characters. It was just an end title screen showing credits. But you heard the riff. The riff was being played. Was that before the album came out? After the album came out. Oh, well, yeah, I mean. So it's interesting that the only time any content from this album was ever used, it was for an end title screen on a video, for, game. On a video yeah. game they released in, after the reunion. Weird. That is very mm. weird. So, yeah, the only time it was ever used. Well, we keep talking about the reunion. We keep saying reunion, reunion, reunion. And, of course, it's no secret or surprise to anyone that this reunion occurs. And we're going to go into greater detail about that on the next episode. And we'll get into the hows and whys. Yeah, because, folks, this was only three months. Yeah. Yeah. With this this was only three months. This is all being planned and put together as they were recording this album. Yeah. And, of course, again, this album doesn't get released until another year and a half later. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on. And we'll talk about all of the lot that is going on <laughs> on the next episode of No Time to Turn. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.